Hello, and welcome to the Last Alliance podcast, the University of Alberta's Tolkien Society book study for the fall term of 2015. Join us this semester as we read and discuss the children of Horan. Hope you enjoy it. from anyone? Yes, Kara. I'm not a star anymore, but I am going to announce that last year's journal, which is usually finished in like May-ish, is finally done. Hey. And Dan and I will be releasing it tomorrow because it's Hobbit Day. Nice! Oh, what? Oh my god. Next to a lot of uh, old myths and stuff about hollow grounds and stuff. 
thing. I like how the cha second chapter begins with saying, um, these are only some of the stories involved in the battle, because that's the sense I get in a lot of Tolkien's works, where you're only seeing part of this bigger tapestry. Um, I'm Sophia, and I liked how in this chapter you get your first sense of what Morgoth is as a power and also what his weakness is, which Horan talks about how he needs a physical form. My name is Tristan, and I think what I found very interesting was how much more than in Lord of the Rings you find great heroes in this, that, for instance, Huron slew 70 orcs before they could even capture him. And that's something that you never come across in the more famous works. My name is Nikita, and one thing that interested me is um, when Morgoth placed the, the curse on, on Huron, I, it, just, it just made me really curious to see what, what type it was, like it's not something that's like a stone type thing, because you can hear, right? So it just intrigued me. <laughs> My name's Lucas, and I really like at the end of the battle when Hiram grabs an axe and just goes berserk. <laughs> that was definitely the inspiration for a Skyrim character. <laughs> I'm Shelby, and I still don't own the book up here. <laughs> just another like just a man and like he's able to sort of like okay yeah everything you're you're just lying like don't don't even talk to me kind of thing it's just like uh, yeah I can see right through you and it's just we talk about sort of elevation a lot here like lower be, be, like people sort of being elevated in the company of higher people so I'm just wondering if like Huron's brief time in Gondolin sort of prepared him for this kind of thing it's just sort of like you know gave him a plus five to constitution kind of thing just uh, just like you know prepared him for this encounter Probably be plus five to willpower. That too. <laughs> nice. Old, yeah, uh, that, uh, everyone that's great. Um, and, uh, and all the things you mentioned are also my favorite. So. Oh, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I'm just, my head is uh, in a fog right now. What's your name, Rick? What's your favorite part? Uh, so my name is Rick, and uh, my uh, all the parts you said are also are also my favorite parts. But there is one line that I always find very fascinating, and it's at the end of the Battle of Unnumbered Tears. Uh, where you have this line, thus ended the near night Arnoidiad, as the sun went down beyond the sea. Night fell in Ithlum, and there came a great storm of wind out of the west, capital W, west. And I always wonder when those, there's always wind coming out of the west in these books, and I'm, I'm very curious about that. Roughly angry wind. Uh, I'm Dan, and I liked how Morgoth lied to Hurin about the outer circles of the my name is Brenna, and uh, this is a little bit morbid to be my favorite part, so I'll just say it like, caught my attention. But when Morgoth's men um, capture Gelmir and they blind him and then cut off his limbs, I feel like that sort of just caught my attention because I, 
brutality of battle. And so, like, having that, like, description of the really terrible things that I'm sure these kinds of guys do all the time and we just don't really hear about it. Yeah. But hearing about it sort of, like, jarred me a little bit. And so I found that interesting. Back to Rick. <laughs> Great. Well, thanks, everyone, for the comments. And I know that uh, uh, Brayden will edit out my... No. <laughs> <laughs> or not. So, okay, so we're going to start with uh, the Battle of Unnumbered Tears, which is the, I believe it's the fifth and final battle of the five battles of Valerian. And uh, yeah, so there's lots of stuff that you picked up in this chapter. Uh, one of the things I want to start with actually is this length, because we talked last time about how the, the first chapter sort of sort of sets us up in a kind of optimistic, kind of hopeful, with a kind of hopefulness. And it actually ends with, we didn't talk about this, but it ends with uh, Hurin shouting this line, flame, light, flee, night, right? So there's a sense of, of a, the chapter ending with this call of the light's going to overcome the darkness. And you have something similar at the bottom of the first, the second page of the Battle of Unnumbered Tears. Um, when uh, the, the, the host is gathered and um, Fingon hears the trumpets afar and Turgon shows up and there's all this excitement and he cries, uh, the night is passing, right? So that sense of sort of hopefulness is still kind of in the air, right? Even at the beginning of this chapter. But of course, as we see, this chapter is where that is pretty much dashed. So, but I wanted just to, I wanted to point that out. Any any thoughts on that, or did you know did you notice that, or any any uh, comments? <coughs> there doesn't have to be any, but I uh, just thought I'd open it up. And... I mean, even in the absolute desperation of being utterly routed <coughs> at the end of the Nirnayath, it's still it's just like day shall come again. It's like hope never really <coughs> dies in Tolkien's right, which is which is. Yeah, that's good, actually. That's, of course, that's what Hurin is shouting when he kills the 70 orcs, right? Day shall come again. What's the difference between flame light, flee, night, the night is passing, and day shall come again? What, how do you see the... There's a, what's the shift there? Okay, we'll start with Sophia, and then Kara, and then Nick. In the first two, it seems like day is winning, whereas in the second one, suddenly it is night now. Yes. Um, it seems to me to be an acceptance in, in the first, especially in the first one, it's like, we are going to win. Yeah. In the second, um, it's, we are winning. Yeah. And in the last one, we will win eventually. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, did you actually have your hand up, Kara, or were you doing something with your... I did, because oh, okay. I was thinking about it. Okay, yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, Brandon, and it was interesting because it shows that even after all this, Hiran still has hope. Yes. Um, he still, he, he's seen all the terrible things that happened, but he still believes that, you know what, we didn't win this time, next time we'll win. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. That's all good. And I, and I think that's important, right? In the face of this terrible defeat... Hurin still has hope, and he has hope, but now that hope has sort of been pushed into the future, right? Whereas before, it was today. This, the hope that we hope for is now going to be fulfilled today. Day has come, we're going to win, we're going to be 
victorious. Morgoth is going to be overthrown. And it does look like it, right? I mean, Turgon shows up. You're like, oh my gosh, Turgon, 10,000 swords, right? And they got a great plan, right? So everything is going to, you know, everything is, looks like it's all going to work out just great, right? And then it doesn't, right? So now Uron, of course, is like, okay, so obviously today wasn't the day. But he still hasn't lost his hope that the death day will come, right? And I think we see, in a sense, we see Tolkien's own understanding of the way the world is unfolding, right? Tolkien, in one of his letters, calls history the long defeat, right? He sort of he quotes Galadriel there, right? And so he kind of see he sort of sees history as a, at least in that letter, it's always hard to quote letters because it's like one moment in time and all the other letters. But in this particular letter, he seems to be suggesting that in his view, history is actually um, declining or moving, is getting worse as time goes on, right? It's a long defeat. And of course, he's a Christian, so his, his hope is in, is in Jesus, right? Who, would, who at the end of time will come and restore all things. That's the, the worldview that he's working out of, right? So for, so for many Christians, hope is sort of this, def, in a sense, of deferred, right? It's kind of, of a deferred hope, but still a hope, right? And so that's what we see sort of kind of coming into play here a little bit. Yeah, Tristan. Uh, what, enough, what you were talking about with the long defeat and things slowly diminishing, that, I see that coming into play along some way. You start out with the age of heroes almost, where there are great heroes and great villains. And as you get into the later times, you get Sauron, who was the servant of Morgoth, and was beaten in the age of heroes multiple times. But he becomes the great evil, and things seem to diminish in grandeur the farther yeah. along in time you go. Yeah, where else do we see that sort of diminishing in Lord of the Rings? And in, 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 his, in his works? Aragorn? Okay, say more about Aragorn. Aragorn being lesser than the Numenorean? Okay, right. Okay, so yeah, so there's a sense where in the Numenorean side of things, so the Adine, right, you have a slow sort of diminishing or dwindling. Okay, now I got Ben, and then Sophia, and then Corinne, and then Nick. Uh, the elves. It's yeah. The obvious one. Right, that's the big one, of course, right? The elves are fading, right? And uh, that shows up already in the Silmarillion. And, and one of the places you see that really interestingly, actually, is, of course, um, who's read Silmarillion? Okay, so Luthien, right, who is an elf, I mean, look what she does in the Silmarillion. I mean, she basically shows up at Sauron's tower and sings and brings the tower crumbling down, right? <laughs> like, that's power, right? Now, Galadriel, if you read in the appendices, does a similar thing. It doesn't say she sings, but she, it does say that she throws down Dul Guldur. So, so Galadriel is, in a sense, kind of in a similar power as, you know, powerful like Luthien, but not as powerful as Luthien. Like, I don't imagine Galadriel walking into Mordor, walking up to Baradur, and singing and having that tower come down, right? That's not because Sauron has become more powerful, because actually, he hasn't, right? He's also diminishing. But the elves are fading. Right? So, so Galadriel is not this, does not have the same power that someone like Luthien has. So there's just a general sort of fading going on in Middle-earth. Uh, Sophia? Um, like he pointed out, it happens within species, but it also happens with the progression of which kind of race is the dominant people of Middle-earth. Mm -hmm. So we start with the elves, and then 
they pass to the West, and then it falls to the Numenorean men who pass to the West, and then it's the next generation of men, and then you'd probably case, get, make a case for the dwarves having a bit of a stance in the Hobbit, and then it passes down to the Hobbits. So with each species that has to kind of take up the mantle of fighting evil, not only are they literally getting shorter and shorter, <laughs> So one question would be, um, what do you think of that kind of worldview, right, that Tolkien has? Right? And again, we're, we're sort of picking on one letter and one, right? But, and, and, and I don't think Tolkien was sort of a pessimist, right? He wasn't like, oh, everything's terrible. There was some of that, you know, like he didn't like modern fiction or modern literature, you know. He had this sense of there was, things today are just not, not uncommon, you know, there's this this sort of image of this great past, you know, oh, in the good old days. But everyone knows that if you actually lived in the good old days, you'll find that they were just as problematic and troublesome as today, right? But we tend to romanticize the past, right? And maybe Tolkien, you know, had a little bit of that. But what do you make of, like, when you, I don't know, what do you make of this question of, of, the, 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 of history as a long defeat? Or, you know, as you look at the, the world around us, you look at, you know, what, what do you think? Is, are things getting better, things getting worse, I think is everything just the same, there's nothing new under the sun, to quote an ancient Jewish poet and cynic. <laughs> yeah. I think, uh, at least in Tolkien's view, I think he's definitely drawing on some of the classical uh, mythologies and histories, because particularly in like Greek, in the Greek myth, mythos, you're going from the Golden Age, Silver Age, uh, yeah down to modern times, and he's seeing that, he's also seeing going through World War One, World War II, so it's, uh, he's, he feels that he's probably drawing from what he's studied in his career, as well as what he's seen in his lifetime. He saw going from the traditional battle tactics of men on horses with swords to going to uh, the age of guns, so it's, He's seeing the same progression, so it may not be pessimistic, but it's something that he's experiencing in his own life, and it has a major effect on his work. Yeah, okay, thank you, good. Yes, Sophia. What I think is particularly interesting 
interesting is that if you read the Lord of the Rings looking at the age of the Silmarillion, it, it, the age of the Silmarillion seems to be very, very idealized. But then when you read the children of Huron, especially, you kind of, you get a sense of when you're actually living in this time, everything has pretty much gone to shit. I'm sorry, but, um, <laughs> but I mean, everybody is living in this constant battle and conditions are really grim and happiness is dying. So even though there's this whole sense of history diminishing, the world seems to be a happier place once you hit Lord of the Rings. And because Tolkien really idealizes that simple lifestyle that the hobbits have, because it's idyllic, idyllic and it's peaceful, and the hobbits do have the power to kind of go out there and make a name for themselves. So it's interesting because he looks at it from both points of view. Yeah, that's, that's great actually, because yes, of course, the Lord of the Rings is written from the perspective of the hobbits, right? And so we might expect that they would have a, a, a more positive and even maybe in a critical way a more a rosier view of life because they've sort of lived in this kind of protected environment where nothing goes wrong except maybe someone tries to steal your spoons, right? But <laughs> other than that, that's pretty much the extent of the But those are my problems, spoons. Right? <laughs> so, so there is this, you know, there is, and then of course, whereas the, the Silmarillion, right, is written from the perspective of the elves, right? And of course, they are much more aware of the kind of battle, and I mean, they've witnessed the, the, the killing of the trees, they've witnessed the, you know what I mean? So they're much more uh, um, sort of aware of kind of the reality of the situation, right? Yeah, Tristan, and then I see Jordan over there. See, how I see it to a certain extent is he's building himself a mythos where the Silmarillion is, and the works of the past from Tolkien's world in, in some way, are like unto the Greek myths, where they are the, they're the background for the story, and they're a hundred different little tales of how great things once were. And then, in some ways, the Lord of Things is almost a modern tale of how things are. And again, it's because it's fantasy, that's hard to explain properly, but that he's saying, here's the greatness that was, but at the same time, things have changed, look at what we have now. Yes. Yeah. So I don't see it as a pessimism per se, so much as an acceptance of the change. Okay. Actually, that's really nice. Yeah. It's interesting because Tolkien, again, we, a couple of years ago, or year, last, when did we do the letters? Was that last, last year? Last year. Anyway, it's really interesting because on the one hand, you have Tolkien cri criticizing the elves for their refusal to accept change. That's one of the big criticisms of the elves. Yet when you read his letters, you see Tolkien thing. himself very resistant to change, right? So it's kind of ironic that he can't seem to, in some sense, take his own criticism against his characters and turn it on, on himself. Right? Now again, you know, that's not to be too judgmental against Tolkien. Although, well, okay, why not? Yeah, Kara. Oh, sorry, Jordan and then Kara. I was just going to say that, at least with the Silmarillion thing, I think one of the big problems is that because of it has, the Silmarillion has such a wide breadth of history it's going for, it skips hundreds and hundreds of years where nothing much happens. You know, it might be, there might be Morgoth up in the north, but he's right. hasn't been due up to much. I mean, whenever things get peaceful, Tolkien 
goes and talks about the rivers and the mountains and stuff. Right. So that I, you know, it's also yeah. kind of just the, the I mean, the hobbits. He, he actually makes a point of going down and showing us their idyllic world for the short time they have it um, before going on dark adventures. Whereas the Silmarillion, we don't you don't get as much of a sense of the you know everyday life in Doriath until you know Turin shows up. Yeah. Okay, good. Kara? Um, kind of going back to Tolkien being resistant to change. It might be he, he might be very aware that he is resistant to change and that is a flaw in himself. But the race in the Middle Earth very much represent different flaws of humanity, different facets right. of humanity, flaws, and also good qualities. Yeah. But that nice. might just be one issue. And it's easiest to portray through the elves because they are the most Okay, I do want to move on because we do want to spend a lot of time on Thurid and Morgoth. But before, there's a couple more things in this chapter I want to end. One is Brynn's comment about Gwyndor um, and the and his hewing. <laughs> um, and one of the, the one of the lines I just wanted to point out here is that the very the very first sentence of that paragraph where it says by ill chance. Now, whenever we see the word chance in Tolkien, we have to pay attention. Right? Because chance is always more than just chance. And uh, we're going to see this, for, this is going to come, I mean, it comes out strongest in a sense in The Hobbit on the positive side, where Bilbo is lucky, but he's so lucky that you're like, okay, that just seems almost <laughs> impossible luck, right? In Turin, of course, we're going to see the opposite. So the fact that that you know this little term by ill chance shows up already so early in the book is I think hardly meant for us to kind of say okay we got to pay attention to to this. But anything else about okay so yeah Windor I mean this is pretty brutal here as as Kira pointed out I mean you're and you're right I think it's rare that you get that kind of brutality in Tolkien although Fingon doesn't get you know he, I mean his his death is pretty brutal too. Basically, get stomped into the dirt. It's, it's interesting, and this, this is going to go to Chris's thing, which is the other thing I wanted to talk about, which is the hill of the slain, right? That becomes hollow. There are a number of instances where, when elves die, their bodies are rescued, right, by the eagles, and then buried, and then those places become hollow ground, right? It's interesting here that Fingon, for some reason, doesn't get that. I don't know, why, why doesn't Fingon's body get swept, get snatched up by the eagles and, and buried somewhere where his, his grave becomes hollow? Is Fingon, I don't know, did he not deserve that? Or maybe there wasn't enough like in left. Oh. Well, yeah, that's true. He is, he would be, so, well, no, I don't know if he's in the Hill of the Slain. Well, like yeah, but it sounds like his body is beaten to to a pulp where it's not even. Uh, yeah, like will there even be a body or? Yeah, there's nothing yeah well, 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 okay. Well, we can we can find it quickly by looking at, at the text. Uh, yes, thus fell the king of the Noldor, and they beat him into the dust with their maces, and his banner, blue and silver, they trod into the mire of his blood. <laughs> I'm gonna guess that that's not recoverable. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, it might not be like recoverable by the eagles, but if they're like a lot of the bodies would have been hacked hewn right. in pieces so, yeah. and they gather that all right. up okay. in there. So, so maybe it's, that's it's why possible. it's, it's possible. They didn't have the technology for dental records yet, so they didn't have Or it's like, is that part of him or is that part of him? <laughs> but I think it's it's notable, to me anyway, it's notable 
that Fingon, who is currently the High King of the Noldor here, is not given the same kind of death as someone like Finrod or Fingolfin, right? Um, so yeah, Ben? That could also be going like with the diminishing of the elves, like before like these greater high kings, they were like worthy of this special funeral thing. Whereas him, he's not as it's like on a lesser scale than the big okay. shift, but it's still like something potential noticeable. Okay. Yeah, Tristan. Going off on a bit of a different tangent, the, the Battle of Unnumbered Tears is really the it's, it's led by one of the sons of Fino, uh, Mandros, is it? Mandros, yeah. yeah. Um, not by the High King of the Elves. And if you look, looking at the Samuelian in general, everything that Fino or his sons do turns out ill. Pretty much. And I think that that might relate back to the ill chance that this is something of a recurring curse from the Valar, that nothing they will do will turn out. Well, I'm, that's actually really good that you brought that up. Because it is interesting, right, that right before the battle, like when Fingon sees all of the, the massive armies, there's this one little line, which we've had with Urin as well, actually, in the first chapter, right? A shadow of doubt fell upon his heart, right? A, a little indication that maybe Fingon is thinking, okay, this maybe is stupid to be true, right? Uh, and then you have the Elf Chance, and I like what you said, Tristan, about, yes, the Sons of Fanor, right, they have the Doom of Mandos is, is sort of directed particularly at them, and the Doom of Mandos in part says, everything you do is going to come to naught, right? So there's that, right? And then you have also the one that I read at the end of the verse about the storm out of the West, right? And you wonder, like, the storm, of course, sort of portrays anger or wrath, right, in, 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 in myths, and so it sounds like the Valar are angry, right? So it raises a question, if we interpret it that way, which we don't have to, but it raises a question, with whom are they angry, right? Um, Morgoth, I don't doubt it. <laughs> but could it, could it also be that the, the, the Valar are angry at the Noldor for insisting on trying to, do, trying to accomplish these things when they've been told very clearly that that's not the way? Uh, okay. Um, oh boy. Let's see what else there. There's. Uh, anyway. Okay. So Chris and then Chris mentioned this idea of the sacred ground, and there's a number of places where that happens. As I said, right. Um, what makes the, the question? One question is what exactly makes the ground sacred, right? In the sense that the orcs don't, or evil will not sort of touch it. Is it the slain? Is it? Um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, we'd have, probably have to go through and look at all the different examples. We don't have the Silmarillion in front of us to do that. But yeah, for him. Well, I think some of it is like a big part. Pretty much, like at least a majority of the you know said mounds and said hallowed ground usually end up in a burned place, and that's the one place that something will grow. And that that's very unnatural to look at and see like this ground remains decayed; it remains burnt. But this one thing in here will grow and will have life. Yeah. And I think like like personally that that's really scary. Like I wouldn't want to go near something where you wouldn't understand why. Yeah. But you know that people died there and for some reason something will grow there. 
it's an entirely unnatural feeling to me. Hmm. Yes, Sophia. Um, this isn't building on that or anything, I'm sorry, but I also loved the detail about the timeline in which this is happening and how he specifies that in the future, this is what the hill will look like. In the future, this hill will become green. But then when he goes back to talking about Hurin, he also makes a point to specify that right now, when Morgoth sticks Hurin on top of this hill of corpses, it's still a hill of corpses. It's not green yet. Okay. They're looking to the future, but also specifying that right now in the present, it still sucks. Yeah. There's also a kind of redemptive thing happening here, right? Whereas as time goes on, there are more and more of these kind of sacred sites in Valerian. Right, that 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 in a sense um, sort of stem the the power of Morgoth in those places. Right, it's almost like a like like a remnant of, of holiness. Right, in these places that that helps to kind of keep Valerian from being completely overwhelmed by right by evil. I don't know, maybe something like that. Yeah, Brady. Yeah, we're sort of building off that. I think it's a very kind of hopeful sign that Morgoth just won this like you know this big battle. You think it's kind of the end of the elves. Then there's still this place that even he can't go. Right. There's still, you know, he, he hasn't conquered all of Valerian, even if it's just this one, this one mound. It's not entirely his. Yeah. Nice. Okay. Okay. Um, and then the last thing, just really quickly, I realized is Corinne did mention the star, and so we may as well just uh, briefly hit that. Um, and everyone knows what that's about and who that's referring to. No. Okay. So, uh, yet it's uh, not now, not long now can Gondolin remain hidden and being discovered it must fall, said Turgon. That's an interesting bit of insight on Turgon's part, right? He sort of realizes in that moment, he loses it again, but at that moment he realizes that what Ulmo said to him, right, is probably going to come to pass. Yet if it stands only a little while, said Uor, then out of your house shall come the hope of elves and men. This I say to you, Lord, with the eyes of death. Now, that's already interesting. <laughs> Though we part here forever, and I shall not look on your white walls again, from you and from me a new star shall arise. Farewell. So he's so so Huor, and he's not the only person who has this, right? But he has this sort of in Spain or has it as well. Right? Right at the moment of death, there's this sort of sudden insight into the future, right? And um, and what is what is Huor here referring to, do you think? Tristan? Yes, it's a remnant, right? Yeah, a remnant. And why? Why is he called a star? Yes, because he becomes a star, right? He wears a silver on his brow. Is everyone familiar with this story? Elves in space. <laughs> right. So, so, right. Turin, Turin's cousin is Tour, right? And Tour ends up in Gondolin, where he marries. Idril, right, who was a daughter of Turgon, and they escaped the fall of Gondolin, and they have a son named Arendil, so he is a son of both the House of Elves and the House of Men, right, Adain and Noldor, and um, he ends up, is the only one who's able to go to Valinor and bring the, the plight of the Noldor and the Adain to the Elf, to the Valor, who then respond in the Lord of Wrath at the end of the Silver. Yeah. So that's so that's so that's that's what this is referring to. So Uur is looking ahead to that. To that. 
Okay, uh, boy. Um, one thing, one quick thing is, I just want to, I just want to uh, make this line, uh, which I really love too, where it says, "Then in the plain of the Anfalith, on the fourth day of the war, there began the near ninth Arnodiad, all the sorrow of which no tale can contain." Mm. And as usual, Tolkien doing very well in writing one sentence. Okay, <laughs> the words of Gurin and Morgoth. Here we go. There's so much here. Boy, there's so much here. How much is there? There's so much. <laughs> and it's so good. Uh, so the realm of Feanor was no more. We read, and the sons of Feanor wandered as leaves before the wind. So the chapter begins again with things are pretty bad. Uh, what do you make of this conversation between Huron and Morgoth? What, what strikes you? What, what issues come up here that you want to talk about? What does this say about divinity, what does it say about humanity, what does it say about life? Anyone? Yes, Lucas. It's like a really uh, sort of religious almost conversation. Like it, I, I, I read the passages recently, but it all smacks up uh, Jesus in the desert. Yes. Good. In fact, I think that that is partly what we are hearing in the background, especially uh, in that first paragraph of the conversation where it says, Therefore, Hurin was brought before Morgoth, for Morgoth knew by his arts and his spies that Hurin had the friendship of the king, that's Turban, and he sought to daunt him with his eyes, but Hurin could not yet be daunted, and he defied Morgoth. Therefore, Morgoth had him chained and set in slow torment, but after a while he came to him, and here it is, and offered him his choice to go free whither he would, or to receive power and rank as the greatest of Morgoth's captains. This is this is the temptation, right? And yeah, so exactly. And I think I think the temptations of Jesus in the Gospels are probably in the token point here. Oh, donuts. They're called Timid. A rose. <laughs> By any other name, that was a sweet name. I think you can find a rose that smells as sweet as a tombet. <laughs> <laughs> um, any other any other parallels you hear here in this in this moment? There's one. There's one other one that I hear. Yeah, Lucas. I don't know if it's a parallel, but it serves along the same theme. Where Morgoth tells him that he's he's learned the master the lessons of his masters by rote. Yes. And like and he says, that's all, that's the last thing I'm going to say is. Mm -hmm. Good. Yeah, we're going to come to that for sure. Actually, kind of lies, he says, that's the last thing I say, and then he says more. So. <laughs> right. Yes, Brenna. Does anyone else think it's really, like, just sort of astounding that these two characters are even capable of, like, having a conversation like this together? Like, I sort of think it speaks a little bit to the intelligence and capability of both of them. That, like, you almost see them as equals in the way that they like mm. respond to each other. I don't know, like because I totally can see Morgoth just being like, "Yep, I'm the ruler of the world. This is awesome. I'm gonna kill you right now." But he doesn't. Like right. he sort of like, I don't know. Makes him petty. Yeah, I like it. Just makes me think he's like that much more evil. 
evil. It's almost like he's taunting her, and by letting him, like, have this conversation, speak his mind, and, like, fight verbally instead of physically. Why, why would Morgoth do that? Like, why wouldn't Morgoth just say, okay, we're in the you're dead? Like, why why capture him at all? Why, why enter into this whole thing? Okay, lots of hands. <laughs> Great. So let's see. How are we going to do this? We'll start with Nick, and we'll go this way this time. So... Well, he knows that Urin spent time in Gondolin, and that's sort of like the like the prime target on his list. He knows that it's out there somewhere, but even for all of his great, dark, lord, majestic powers, he can't find it, so he's forced to kind of go along with this pity, little, pitiful little human and kind of try and coax it out of him. So like he's sort of just showing that he's not all-powerful. He has to sort of find it out the way most people would. Okay. I think it's, it's a couple of things. One is... Um, like Morgoth is the supervillain on this, and every you know every supervillain needs their their moment to gloat. But I think part of it is also to engage in this conversation and maybe you know damn Huron by his own words, like when he says, "Blind you are, Morgoth Balglier, and blind shall ever be, seeing only the dark." And then Morgoth curses Huron to see only through his eyes on that, to, you know, to really, and then Huron really understands how much. Morgoth can resist not trying to smack someone down when they stand up and, and defy them and have the gall to talk back to Morgoth. He can't not engage in conversation on that. Okay. I don't remember who's had their hands up, so we just go around until... Okay, so then Chris? Um, I think Morgoth has a very desperate desire to dominate men and elves, which... He's somewhat accomplished with the elves making orcs, but I think he's very obsessed with controlling the future of the world, and he sees that as the children of Luvatar. So, you know, every chance he can get with the mightiest of humans, a guy who can slay 80 orcs on, or 70 orcs on his own with an axe seems pretty worthwhile. So he's probably trying to convince him to join up. He probably goes through all the effort of cursing him to sort of he, he wants to be in control. He has a need to dominate. And Turin's just kind of like the best example of humanity at this point. That's good. Uh, ben? Oh, I'm just going to add something. And that I think that Morgoth also has sort of a grudging respect for Hurin as being like a human um, with, you know, a tiny little lifespan and everything. But the fact that he's able to do so much damage and be like so influential, I think uh, Morgoth respects that and even realizes that you know you can't just ignore humans; they're they're going to be big players. Okay. And I think that Morgoth just doesn't understand why someone would not want more power, because he's like the first thing he does is well torture, but then the second <laughs> thing he does is like. Hey, you want all this stuff? Because this stuff is nice. I have all this stuff. And he's like, no, that stuff is... Huron is like, no, that stuff is stupid. And Morith is like, what? Why do you not want power? Power is great. Okay. Jesse? Well, what I thought about this passage is it shows how low Morgoth is. Like, just talking about how higher beings bring them up. But it's just how low and I don't want to say powerless Morgoth is because he 
is obviously quite powerful, but he has this desperate need to prove his strength and the fact that a human challenged him and tried to stare him down just infuriates him. And he has this desperate need to prove that, no, I can totally destroy you completely and utterly good one. Tristan and back this way again. So. <laughs> I don't know point about correct. I didn't read the actual passage, but in the introduction, uh, Christopher explains um, why it happened, or why he explains why his father said it happened. Yeah, and I want to get to that okay. before you read it. Okay. Yeah, so <laughs> just hold that thought. Yeah, Tristan. Looking at it more from a writing perspective and a plot device, it shows you an insight into Morgoth's head that he doesn't see the world as normally with power hunger. He has a completely twisted view of what reality is. Good, good. Okay, Sophia? Um, what really struck me a lot in that conversation was not only the fact that Morgoth can't just, you know, force himself into Horin's mind for his answers, he actually has to try and talk to him, giving Horin a lot of agency, but also, um, sorry, Okay, but also, how easily Corin was able to just resist the temptation? He didn't consider it for a second. He was just, yeah, no, I don't want your deal, which was kind of odd to me, considering what a huge role temptation plays in some other Tolkien works. Okay. Yeah, Chris? My thought kind of carries on to that. This shows a, kind of a big thing for like how men also in Middle-earth decline, similarly to the elves. This time, you know, the highest pinnacle example of men just says screw you to the the essence of evil itself. He says, no, screw yourself. I am good. I will not work for you. Whereas later on down the line, all it takes is, you know, not that great of an evil to say, hey, you want a shiny ring? If you work for me, I'll give it to you. And they go all for it. It sort of shows how men also have that downward, you know, slope towards lesser existence okay wow this is really great so why don't we now let's just let's do what, what we often try to do is actually read some text and let's just read this together so it's in our head because a lot of the issues that you brought up are addressed in the conversation itself so um, so we'll need a narrator I will tell you so we have a narrator we need uh, Hurin. Okay, Corinne, thanks. And we need Morgoth. Next <laughs> okay, so um, in your book, Kara, we're on page 62. We're going to be where it says, we're going to start with the paragraph, Therefore, Hurin was brought before Morgoth, for Morgoth knew by his arts and spots. So can everyone find that? That's uh, the second page of the chapter. Everybody there? Okay, bye everybody. Leslie, thanks. Okay, here we go. Therefore, Hurin was brought before Morgoth, for Morgoth knew by his arts and his spies that Hurin had the friendship of the king, and he sought to daunt him with his eyes. But Hurin could not yet be daunted, and he defied Morgoth. Therefore, Morgoth had him chained and set in slow torment. 
And after a while he came to him and offered him his choice to go free whither he would, or to receive power and rank as the greatest of Morgoth's captains, if he would but reveal where Turgon had his stronghold, and aught else that he knew of the king's counsels. But Hurin the steadfast mocked him, saying, Blind you are, Morgoth Balglir, and blind shall ever be, seeing only the dark. You know not what rules the hearts of men, and if you knew, you could not give it. But a fool is he who accepts what Morgoth offers. He will take first the price, and then withhold the promise, and I should get only death if I told you what you ask. Then Morgoth laughed, and he said, <laughs> Death, you may have crave of me as a boon. Then he took Hurin to the Haud and Nerneeth, and it was... And it was then new-built, and the reek of death was upon it. And Morgoth set Hurin upon its top, and bade him look west towards the throne, and think of his wife and his son and other kin. For they dwell now in my realm, said Morgoth, and they are at my mercy. You have none, answered Hurin, but you will not come at Turgon through them, for they do not know his secrets. Then hath mastered Morgoth, and he said, Yet I may come at you, and all your accursed house, and you shall be broken on my will, though you all were made of steel. And he took up a long sword that lay there, and broke it before the eyes of Hurin, and a splinter wounded his face. But Hurin did not blench. Then Morgoth, stretching out his long arm towards Darlomi, cursed Hurin and Morgoth, and their offspring, saying, Behold, the shadow of my thoughts shall lie upon them wherever they go, and my hate shall pursue them to the ends of the world. But Hurin said, You speak in vain, for you cannot see them, nor govern them from afar, not while you keep this shape, and desire still to be a king visible on earth. Then Morgoth turned to Hurin, and he said, Fool, little among men, and they are the least of all that speak. Have you seen the Valar, or measured the power of Manwe and Barda? Do you know the reach of their thought? Or do you think, perhaps, that their thought is upon you, and that they may shield you from afar? I know not, said Hurin. Yet so it might be, if they willed, for the elder king shall not be dethroned while Arda endures. You say it, said Morgoth. I am the elder king, Melkor. First and mightiest of all the Valar, who was before the world and made it. The shadow of my purpose lies upon Arda, and all that is in it bends slowly and surely to my will. But upon all whom you love, my thoughts shall weigh as a cloud of doom, and it shall bring them down into darkness and despair. Wherever they go, evil shall arise. Whenever they speak, their words shall bring ill counsel. Whatsoever they do shall turn against them. They shall die without hope, cursing both life and death. But Hurin answered, Do you forget to whom you speak? Such things you spoke long ago to our fathers, but we escaped from your shadow. And now we have knowledge of you, for we have looked on the faces that have seen the light, and heard the voices that have spoken with Manwe. Before Arda you were, but others also, and you did not make it. Neither are you the most mighty, for you have spent your strength upon yourself and wasted it in your own emptiness. No more are you now than an escaped thrall of the Valar, and their chain still awaits you. You have learned the lessons of your masters by rote, said Morgoth. But such, such childish lore will not help you, now they are all fled away. This last then I will say to you, thrall Morgoth, said Hurin, and it comes not from the lore of the Alvar, but is put into my heart in this hour. You are not the lord of men, and shall not be, though all Arda and Mena fall in your dominion. Beyond the circles of the world, you shall not pursue those who refuse you. Beyond the circles of the world, I will not pursue them, said Morgoth. For beyond the circles of the world, there is nothing. But within them, they shall not escape me until they enter into nothing. You lie, said Hurin. You shall see, and you shall confess that I do not lie, said Morgoth. 
and taking Hurin back to Angband, and he set him in a chair of stone upon a high place in Fangoradrim, from which he could see afar, and the land of Hitham in the west, and the lands of Galerian in the south. There he was bound by the power of Morgoth. And Morgoth, standing beside him, cursed him again, and set his power upon him, so that he could not move from that place, or die, until Morgoth should release him. Sit now there, said Morgoth, and look out upon the lands where evil and despair shall come upon those whom you have delivered to me. For you have dared to mock me, and have questioned the power of Melkor, master of the fates of Arda. Therefore with my eyes you shall see, and with my ears you shall hear, and nothing shall be hidden from you. Alright. Wow. So good. Uh, and if you come tomorrow uh, for the secondary book study, we're going to talk about this as well, and we're going to compare it to the conversation that Umo has with the tool, which is also very Okay, so uh, let's start this time with Chris, and then Lucas, I think, and then Nick, and Nikita, do you have your hand? No. Okay. <laughs> um, I really like Melkor's line of, I made Arda. Yeah. And when you read the Silmarillion, the part where they're making, like where um, Iluvatar's forgiven um, him for, you know, his first transgressions, and said, okay, all you Valar, go make the world. Melkor spent the entire time trying to mess it up. So I picture it as like a class, like of elementary school kids told to make a PowerPoint. It's like all the Valar trying to present, and then Melkor just sit off the corner. Yeah, I made this. <laughs> this is mine. These guys, they didn't do any of the work. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, Lucas. As I was say, it's really interesting because earlier in the chapter he's bargaining with Huron because, like you said, like he needs to find out where Gondolin is, and now he's sitting here talking like you know I am all of this. And it's like, okay, if you're actually as good as you say, why do you need to like literally negotiate with a mortal to find a city? Like, and it's it's just sort of, I don't know if that's arrogance or if it's denial, but it's like you know he's pumping himself up like I'm the best thing that there ever was, like I'm the greatest of the Valar, which um, we all know he's like afraid of the other Valar, mm-hmm. and then. But at the same time, he, he's actually at Turin's or Urin's mercy in terms of figuring out where the city is. Yeah. Okay. Uh, pretty much just what uh, Lucas said. He's just, I think, at, like, uh, at one point he might have been like the mightiest of all the Valar, but at this point he sort of spent so much of his strength that he's kind of, he's, you know, like Lucas said, he sort of has to cater to the whims of this pity little, pitiful little human. And it's like, okay, I'm the master of the world. But yet, everyone can easily see, well, if you are, then how come you're talking to me? You know, it's like, why do you need to bother to keep me alive? So he easily sees through the lie because he's sort of like, you know, Morgoth isn't as, as great as he once was. Okay, yeah, Kara? Uh, Nick's comment made me remind me of a line that he's, um, where he tells Morgoth you spent too much on yourself and now you're just the emptiness. Yeah. And I think that it speaks to Morgoth's, or Melkor's potential of what, how great he could have been, except that instead of sharing his gifts and making art, he just like consumed it all and that's yep. evil's undoing. Yeah, so great. So a whole bunch of things here. One of course is Melkor is not lying when he says he is the greatest and mightiest of the Valar because at the time he was actually the strongest and mightiest of the Valar, right? But as Kara pointed out, so and this is I think so back to the question of why does Morgoth bother doing this? And there's a number of reasons that you've all hit, right? So hey, hey. one is that um, he needs Hurin because Hurin has information about Turin, right? So that's one reason why Morgoth wants to keep him alive, right? 
but another reason, I think, is because you're, you're all right. Morgoth's power has been diminished, right? And that diminishment of power, how, how does... And this is, this is sort of a constant trend throughout the Lord of the Rings in terms of, of the villains or the big baddies, right? Is how is it that their power gets diminished? Nick? He, he willfully sort of pours it into his creations. Exactly. Right? He, he, he pours out his power into his minions and that robs him of power, right? Sauron does the same thing, the most one, the most one being the ring, right? He pours so much of himself into the ring that when the ring is destroyed, he's destroyed, right? So part of Morgoth's diminishment is the fact that, and, and, this, and this again goes back to an unwillingness to share power. Because you might say, oh, but I thought sharing power was a good thing. But Morgoth isn't sharing his power, right? He's dominating with his power, right? So it's not like the orcs have any sort of, I mean, whatever freedom they have is very much limited because they are tied so deeply to Morgoth's will, right? So he's not sharing power. He's using his power to control others, but still kind of hanging on to it, right? So that, of course, is draining him. So I think at this point, he's not as, you know, as, as strong as he was at the beginning when, when the world was being made. Um, the other thing I think that is important is that Morgoth, like all Tolkien's villains, has a pride problem, right? And one of the reasons that he wants Hurin to suffer is not only because Hurin defies him, but more importantly, Hurin mocks him. And that's like, for Morgoth, that's the, the, the unforgivable sin, right? One th hey, one thing that you can, you can say all you want to me, but don't you dare make fun of me. Right? If you mock, right? So that's all coming into play in Morgoth's very misguided sort of attempt to keep Hurin alive when it would have, in a sense, made more sense, except for the very practical consideration of finding Turgon. Right? It would have been better just to just to wipe him out, but because he right, he just can't let that kind of that that go, that def, that defying. Um, uh, yeah. Okay. So that's okay. Uh, now another question that came up was how is it that Huron so easily resists the temptation? And okay, I see. Okay, Alex. Yes. Um, I was actually just going to say, can we do some announcements? Uh, yes. Have you done announcements already at the beginning? Uh, we did, but we can do them again. Oh. Okay. Cool. Um, yeah, so I was just going to announce for people who came in, which I don't know because I only came in, um, <laughs> but just the announcements for this week um, are to, okay, so we have our Inklings event this Thursday, um, which is going to be led by Nick, um, and basically it's a creative writing event, so f uh, for any of you guys who were last year and went to our creative writing event in like March-ish, um, it's the same kind of style, so it's for writers and people who are interested in writing, even if they don't have anything going on right now. Um, it's the two-hour event in Eka L1-150, and so Eka is right by, or it's that colorful building that's across 87th Avenue, um, which is some way. That's by Health Sciences. Yeah, by yeah. Health Sciences. Um, and so it's going to be, um, have like a bunch of writing games, and it's for anyone to come. If you, if you aren't working on something, you can feel free to come anyway and just um, like talk about writing and do some writing games. If you are working on something, it's a good place to get feedback if you want feedback on your writing. 
Um, and then our other announcement for this week is just our panel at the Edmonton Expo. So if anyone is going to the Edmonton Expo, um, check it out. It's at 4.30 on Saturday, and it's called The Roles of Women in the Works of J.R.R. Tolkien. Um, and so on the panel is going to be me, Sarah Lynn, Daniel, and Brayden, and Kira's moderating. Um, so it's going to be pretty cool, so you should come check it out and ask us hard questions. Um, and then other than that, it's just the book study tomorrow for Unfinished Tales is in Hub 169 at 12.30 as usual. And then for next week, the chapters are the next two chapters in The Children of Torin. So it's um, the departure of Torin and in Torin and Doria are the next two chapters that we're reading. And is that going to be one of the challenges we do? Yeah, the challenges are next week. Is when we'll, So if you guys have made anything artistic, then bring it in, even if it's not necessarily a challenge fulfillment. If you have anything artistic that you've done in the past month related to Tolkien and want to bring it in, that would be awesome. What are the challenges? Um, the challenges are, uh, write, so there's a poetry, prose, and um, visual challenge, and they're listed on the website. But from what I can remember, the poetry one is to write a lament for the Battle of Number Tears. Um, the prose one was to write a newspaper article or like headline or tabloid um, about the Battle of Unnumbered Tears or the Death of Horn, I believe. And then I can't actually remember the visual one. Dan hasn't pulled up what it looks like. Uh, uh, draw Turin's, like map out Turin's Road to Doria. Yeah, map out Turin's Road to Doria. But if you forget, they are all listed on the website and the, the website link is always sent out in every week's email. So you'll get an email today with all the links and also you can just check out the website anytime. Yeah, and you can do any kind of creative, like it doesn't have to be those three, you can write, yeah. any, you know, if something struck you that you want to write something out, feel free to do that, or draw, whatever, yeah, yeah. you take everything. Yeah, the main goal of the challenges is so that we can have like cool things to put in our journal at the end of the year, yeah. um, which is like where we put all like the art and the poetry and everything, so, yeah, anything you guys want to do. Cool, thanks for Great. that. Just on top of that, for Hobbit Hike again, just a reminder, bring uh, information in, we'll be clicked until the end of the week. And for books, you can either um, bring them to Rick's office, your books are made, or else uh, just send me a message or something and I can meet you up to take those too. Yeah. Okay. Okay, sorry, you can continue. Yeah, no, great. <laughs> okay, so um, how is it that Turin, or how is it that Turin is able to resist the temptation of Morgoth? What, what in this, what that we read, gives us a reason for that? Because that was one of the questions, like, how does he do that so easily? Yeah, Nick. Well, I, I still maintain that it was his time in Gondolin kind of like prepared him for it. We talk about like elevation all the time, so like that's what happened. He sort of um, prepared him for this encounter. Okay. Well, yeah. I think he just has this unshakable sense of hope for like the world, just because like the Eldar will remain, he believes, and that they are like the powers of the world, and if they stand, nothing can fall kind of thing. Yes. Okay, good. So, so okay, and those two things are connected, right? So, um, okay, uh, Lucas? Um, I wasn't able to find it in this, so it might be in the Unfinished Tales version. But I think somewhere in there it says something about how, like, Hurin's just really happy to, like, be sort of one of the lords under the elves. Like, I, it might just be that Hurin's actually not super ambitious in terms of rising. So, you know, when Morgoth is like, oh, you will be the greatest of my captains or whatever, that's, that might not actually be, like, a legit temptation for her. Okay. Like, it's a little bit how we, we talked about, you know, why are the hobbits more resistant to the ring? In Lord of the Rings, well, maybe because you know at their worst, hobbits think of growing really big gardens. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So yeah, so so Huron may not have that kind of ambition. Um, okay, I think it was Dan, and then Corinne, and then Alex. Uh, Huron's well known for enduring throughout his life, just as a part of his character. He's known as Huron the Steadfast. 
Right. But I think it's just a part of his character that it is. Yeah, and it is interesting that he's not named the steadfast until after he resists the temptation. Right. That's the first time we have That's that really focused. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Correct. Well, I think he also just has a really good understanding of Morgoth's mind. So I mean, Morgoth offers this to him, and he's like. Yeah, you're going to offer me this, and then you're A, not going to give it to me, and B, make my life worse. Yeah. So it, it, may, it just may not be even be in a, a temptation because he understands that what he agrees to is what he's not going But how does Gurun know that about Morgoth? It's in there. Pretty, oh. Nick? Uh, well, just reading it now, he says, uh, such things you spoke long ago. Exactly! They, he, like, he... Humans have experienced this kind of temptation exactly. before. That's the key. He knows Morgoth because, right? Such things you spoke long ago to our fathers, but we escaped from your shadow. Right? That's why he doesn't fall for it. Because he already knows that Morgoth is a liar. Right? That plus what everyone else has said, which is, and now we have knowledge on you of you, for we have looked on the face that have seen the light and heard the voices that have spoken with Manwe, and then he gives this sort of profession of faith, right? Before Arda you were, but others also, and you did not make it. Neither are you the most mighty, for you have spent your strength upon yourself and wasted it on your own emptiness. No more are you now than an escape through all of the valor, and their chain still awaits you. How does he know about a chain? Exactly, because he spent time in Gondolin and Turgon told him about the history of the Silmarillion. Right? That's this goes all the way back to Turin's comments when Sador is saying, Boy, it's too bad we hadn't been raised, right? And Turin says, Yet, my father loves them, if I can find it back really quickly. He's not happy with it. Um, But my father loves him, said Turin, and he's not happy without them. He says that we have learned nearly all that we know from them and have been made a nobler people. This is that coming back into play, right? Gurin was quick of mind, remember? So Gurin is now, you know, this is sort of like, you know, to use my tradition, it's like Gurin as a kid went to catechism, right? And now, in the midst of this crisis, his catechism is coming back, right? And he's saying, look, we, we know all this stuff. We learned all this stuff, right? So you aren't going to trick us. You aren't going to be able to, right? So that's sort of what's, what's coming into play here, I think. Okay, I don't know why I was yelling at you. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I know that he was doing it. I feel like it's a lecture. Is there anything? It's a new box. Who knows? Again. Um... Uh, now, what's interesting, though, right, is, and someone had mentioned this, but I think is really good, is it's not, Huron is not only relying on his catechism, for lack of a better term, right? In fact, Morgoth even says, oh, I see you've learned your letters by rote, you know, sort of like, oh, I can see, hey, anyone can, can, can just recite, you know, rattle off, it's sort of like cramming for an exam, right? You rattle it off on the exam, and then the next day you've forgotten it, right? So anyone can just rattle it off. And then Turin does this thing where he says, yes, but not only the catechism, but now I'm going to speak from my heart. Right? And what does he say? When he speaks from his heart. You are not the Lord of men and shall not be, O all Arda, and 
Benel fall in your dominion, because in the circles of the world you shall not pursue those who refuse you. I don't know how Durin knows that, right? Except that he is maybe a child of the Lubitar, right? And there is hints that when you read some of the later works of Tolkien, there is talk that the Luvatar actually had a very special relationship with men that he didn't have with elves. That Luvatar himself, remember Alex, we read this? Mm-hmm. That Luvatar himself actually came and spoke to men at their beginning. Yep. Right? Which is really, really kind of cool. Um, so this is sort of like walking by faith, not by sight. Kind of like. so yeah. Well, that would be something that Corey would know since he already knows that Morgoth tempted them before. Right. Probably know about that too. Yeah. Yeah, Alex? Well, yeah, and he knows, like, it's pretty common knowledge that men are tied to the world when they die, yeah. whereas the Valar and the Elves are, so I think that's pretty, that's a normal thing to say, to yeah. be like, you can't pursue people out of the circles of the world because no one can unless you're a man. Right. Yep. Yeah, Chris? I think that relationship between um, Iluvatar and men kind of goes back to Tolkien's religious values, and uh, particularly my religious background of God speaking directly to men through mm-hmm. the form of prophets, yep. seers, revelators, yep. you name it. So. And I would say it goes, it goes back even further to that, to Genesis, where human beings are created in the image of God. Yeah. Right? So human beings in the creation story have a, have a unique relationship to God uh, compared to all other... But, of course, and, and of course, you know, this happens in, in, in Tolkien too, and it happens in the biblical story where you know humans thinking they have this special unique relationship, then right away elevate themselves and say, "Say, look how great we are! We're awesome!" Right? And so I always remind people that in Genesis, God blesses all the animals and stuff before He blesses humans. Right? So, but anyway, that's a different. That's a different. <laughs> um, okay, so now I want to talk about the curse itself. What do you notice about the curse? What do you What do you see? What do you hear? What uh, what kind of language do you notice? Are there repeated words or ideas? The answer there is yes. <laughs> yes. No. Anything strike you about that? What page is that on? Um, in this version, it starts on page... It's the last page of the last third page? chapter. Yeah. Actually, it starts... It actually starts where we read. It starts, therefore, Huron was brought before Morgoth. That's where we start seeing the theme is picked up, and then that particular theme runs through the entire conversation. Yes? Okay, well, I'm kind of reiterating what we said in the sure. Silmarillion book study, but um, I think we talked a lot about uh, how the curse is to see what Morgoth can see, which yeah. A, means he can like see what's going on in Valerian, which means he can see what happens to his children, but also could mean that he sees it how Morgoth sees it, and that perhaps he doesn't see everything completely truthfully, and he kind of sees it through Morgoth's cruel eye, or Morgoth's particularly twisted way of thinking. Okay. Yes, so, and and the key to this is the idea of seeing. Right? So I'm just going to whip through this conversation again just to show you, or so you can see <laughs> right, how often that plays out, right? So it starts with that paragraph, right, therefore Bruno's brought before Morgoth, right? But Urin the Steadfast mocked him, saying, Blind you are, Morgoth Bowlier, and blind shall ever be, seeing only the dark. So that's the first indication that we're talking about sight, right? Then, next page, Morgoth laughs, which I think echoes Hurin's laughter at the first chapter. Then he took Hurin to the Howl and Near Knife, and it was then new built, and the reek of death was upon it, and Morgoth set Hurin upon its top and made him to look 
west towards Hitler. And think of his life, right? Then it goes down. Next paragraph. Then wrath mastered Morgoth. And he said, yet I may come at you in all your accursed home. You shall be broken, da, da, da. And he took up a long sword and broke it before the eyes of Urim. And a splinter hits his face, but he did not flinch. Next paragraph. But Urim said, you speak in vain, for you cannot see them, nor govern them from afar. Next paragraph. Then Morgoth turned upon Urim and he said, fool, little one men, and they that are least of all that speak. Have you seen the Valar, or measured the power of Manwe? Right? Then, over the page, uh, down at the bottom, but Huron answered, Do you forget to whom you speak? Such things you spoke long ago to our fathers, but we escaped from your shadow. And now we have knowledge of you, for we have looked on the faces that have seen the light. On and on, right? And then you flip over the page again. Beyond the circles of the world, there is nothing. You lie, said Huron. You shall see, and you shall confess that I do not lie, said Morgoth. And take Huron back to Angband, and set him in a chair of stone at a high place of Thangorodrim, from which he could see afar the land of Hitlam and west. Da 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 da. Sit now there, said Morgoth, and look. But upon the look out upon the lands where evil and despair shall come upon those whom you have delivered to me, for you have dared to mock me. Yeah, don't do that. And have questioned the power of Melkor, master of the face of Arda. Therefore, with my eyes you shall see, and with my ears you shall hear. And nothing shall be hidden from you. I have a feeling that sight is important here. I see what you did there. You see what I did there? Yeah. Okay? So what do you make of it? And we actually talked about... Oh, was this in Unfinished Tales? Or was we talked about... It was, on, it was in Unfinished Tales. In the story of Tour and his coming to Gondolin, you have all these examples of people recognizing people, like seeing their faces. and right. So sight in there also becomes, in, in the Tour story, becomes something of Okay, so what do you make of this? This idea of seeing, and of seeing, and Morgoth being blind, and seeing, and, and having Huron see through his eyes, and all this language of sight. Yeah, great. Um, I think it contrasts interestingly with Turin, because all the time he's blinded by things, or he doesn't see the truth, so it's like Turin, Turin is all sight, and Turin's all blindness. Nice. Okay. Good. Uh, oh, yes. Nice. Yes. I see how you did that. <laughs> I did that. Yes, you did. You're copying. Yeah, Alex. Um, okay, so I thought, like, so in this first paragraph where it says, Blind you are, Morgoth, this is for it, and blind ever shall be seen only in dark, you know not rules, what rules the hearts of men. I think that's very interesting because it's like, he, like, even though Morgoth's like, oh, I can see everything, and I can see the fates of your children, and, like, I can see what's going to happen, but he's blind to the hearts of men. So, like, even though he's, like, he can see what's going on, he's not necessarily, like, knows what, why that's happening. Okay, great, yes. So he sees, but he's not all-seeing, mm -hmm. which is very similar to Sauron, who also, and maybe, I don't know if Sophia was going to get to this, but who also is an, is an eye, right? Yeah, Sophia? Um, oh, okay, well... One, one thing, like what Alex said, was that um, it's interesting how Tolkien equates with only equates only being able to see the dark with being blind. Mm -hmm. Kind of like, if you can only see the dark, you might as well not be seeing anything at all. And yeah, it's also very Sauron and Palantir-ish, so that was interesting too. Right. In fact, there is, I think, a connection between the Eye of Sauron and the fact that Sauron does have the um, okay, Paulina, and then Dan, and then Nick, and then Lucas. There's like this correlation, or I guess comparison between like seeing visually, which Morgoth can do. He can see 
literally things at face value, but he doesn't quite understand um, like the things like the source of hope for men. He doesn't understand that people can still be hopeful because that's just not a facet of Morgoth. And I think that plays very nice, like very nicely with um, Ulmo and what he's evoked. It's all hope and it's all, you know, I don't know, hopeful and nice. Yeah, nice, good. Dan? I just really like how um, it, it speaks to Morgoth having a twisted vision of the world that he curses Hurin with all that he sees and hears and then states that nothing shall be hidden from him. So he believes that he, what he sees is truth as well. Right. That's really good. I want to come back to that. Yeah, correct. Yeah, that was kind of interesting is that he doesn't... Like, at one point, he's telling Hurin this is a curse, but doesn't see that his own ability... <laughs> like, like, him being that... like He's, he's, cur he's cursing Hurin to be that way, but he's perfectly, like, content, or, like, he doesn't change the way that he sees, even though, like, they're, they're not... There's not a difference in how they are viewing the world, but it's good for Morgoth and not for Burin, and he doesn't see that, that tension. Right, nice. Yeah, Nick. Um, well, I just find it interesting, interesting that he sort of makes Burin see what he sees, which we can say, or we can safely say that like he's seeing a twisted view of the world. It's kind of similar to how it was like Sauron with the Palantir. He sort of makes Denethor see things, but it's like a very like, twisted view. You're only seeing like a small portion of things. You're not seeing like, the whole picture, so it's kind of like a, a pattern of these dark lords. Yes, that's exactly right. When we read the story of Denethor and his twisting, we're supposed to hear this. We're supposed to hear it in more out there. Yeah, yeah, Lucas? I find it interesting that he claims nothing will be hidden from you, but the fact that they're having this conversation is because the city of Gondolin is hidden from him. Right. <laughs> exactly. He needs her to help finding this hidden city. Right. And then he's like, nothing will be hidden from you, except for apparently Gondolin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, and as Alex said, what's actually in the hearts of men, right? So we're all, so this is great, right? We're getting into how Morgoth, right? I think Morgoth believes this about himself, right? But it, but the very belief itself we're already seeing just by virtue of the conversation is already like Nick said and Dan said a skewed kind of scene. Uh, Sophia and then Brayden. I'm sorry for going a little bit off topic with this, but Tolkien has an interesting way of putting the five senses into a hierarchy. Like if you look at some of his, I don't know grunt minion evil characters they tend to be really strongly associated with smell or taste like the the nine riders or whatever have to smell things because they can't see and orcs want to eat people all of the time and they're all like sniffling and that sort of thing and they talk about you know eating people but anyway um then on the other hand the higher sort of more nobler characters tend to either have extraordinarily good sight Right, like the elves can see ridiculously far. What do your elf eyes? <laughs> yeah, thank you. Um, or really keen hearing, kind of thing, and so it becomes very interesting when you look at the really sort of high up villains like Sauron and Morgoth because they're also very strongly associated with sight, but with a corrupted kind of sight. So it just really drives home the fact that if you're a really powerful villain, you're still a corrupted version of something that was once good. Nice. That's great. In fact, that would make a great little research paper for our journal next year. <laughs> <laughs> Get started. So, no, actually, that's really good, and that makes me want to actually, actually really kind of stop and think about that, but we can't, but I really want to. 
Yeah, Brayden. Um, well, I just want to comment too that I don't necessarily think that the curse is being able to see out of more of our size. I think it's more being able to see out of more of our size and not being able to do anything about it. Mm -hmm. You know, you can't move or anything. So it's even though like you know, I I, I think more like more about is like you know, curse of the giving of the sight and it is twisted and stuff. But equally so, it's different than more about sight. That more about can go do whatever he wants in Middle Earth or Hearn's tied to a chair. Right. It's depressing. Yes, and I do want to. Yes, and we're going to get to that right because. Because we can, I mean, despite the fact that, that Morgoth is seeing through a skewed vision, yet he still curses, and the curse is effective, right? So we, we do want to talk about that. So, and, and uh, how that plays out. So Dan, and then Corinne, and then I want to refer to some other. Yeah. Uh, just going back to what Sophia was saying about, about more powerful beings having greater sight, like the elves being able to see long distances. Uh, it's interesting to me that that sight could also mean perception in this case. So, like an elf may be able to perceive more about about a certain being, or or a higher man like Hurin could perceive more about more about through his education. Mm -hmm. Nice. Yeah. No, still, yeah. Great. Um, I kind of want to build on what Brayden was saying. Where it's, I I definitely agree that part of the curse is like he can't do anything about it. But I think another part of the curse is there isn't a room for hope. Right in Morgoth's, and like Corrin beforehand has been like the most ridiculously hopeful person that has, you know, it, it's like even though like we're with the elves and nothing can possibly go wrong, I mean and there's a whole history of lore that says that yes things can go wrong, but he can't believe that yeah. the elves will fail and with Morgoth Morgoth doesn't understand hope at all right. you can't, there's no room for Morgoth to understand hope nice. yeah, Alex Okay, so I just have one last thing on this curse, though. Um, yeah. So I think the interesting thing is because, like, you always talk about the curse, and you're like, okay, so how much of Turin's life is because of the curse, and how much right. is because he makes bad decisions? But I think it's very interesting that in the delivery of the curse, there's nothing about, I'm going to make Turin's life bad. It's always about, I'm going to make you see this and right. not do and not be able to do anything about it, which I think is very interesting because there is not really a language of, like, I'm gonna go wreck your family and I'm gonna go make everything horrible and you're gonna and like that's what I'm gonna do like that's my curse except which, that the, the shadow of my thought will be on them yeah I guess that's true is the point yeah. and my hate shall pursue them to the ends of the world yeah, yeah. JK <laughs> <laughs> but like I don't know we were talking about all this seeing and I'm like there's so much seeing but what is he doing but I was like yeah he's an Elgore he's like pretty much equal yeah. so I guess that's true but I think there is still something to be said that I think a lot of the curse is the fact that Huron has to Everything. see it and see that his children are still making terrible decisions. Everything that happens to the family is Huron's curse. Well, I think Turin can also do bad things himself too. <laughs> yeah. But Lucas, I admit we're, that yeah, I am wrong. Maybe it's we're totally going to that. Yeah, Lucas. Sort of actually backing up Alex's point. Morgoth never really wins entirely through his own means. Like, Battle of Number Tears is largely because of treachery. I think there's a couple other battles that are largely because someone decides to piece it in the middle of the battle. Yeah. And like the fall gauntlets, Megalos falls, yeah. Like almost all of these great crap tragedies you can trace back to someone who was for all intents purposes a good guy decided that they were gonna not be a good guy anymore. But I think that the betrayal often can also be attributed to Morgoth. Right? Like the Battle of Unnumbered Tears in particular. Like Umbar or, or whatever that guy's name is, he he Oldorf or Gwyndor. No, not Gwyndor, the the, the Easterling guy. Right? He betrays Mithras because Morgoth has promised him land, right? That in the end, of course, Morgoth doesn't give it, right? Morgoth instead says, here, have Hithlo, right? That's not what, what he promised them, 
right? So there you have the betrayal, I think, is based on promises that Morgoth made. Um, but it would be interesting to look and see. Because I remember, like, like Elrond says this, right, in the Council of Elrond, right? Treachery is always our greatest foe, right? So they're very aware of, of this kind of stuff. Yeah. Morgoth as a Vala personifying greed and, and, um, and pride, uh, as we saw with his dealings with Feanor back in, mm -hmm. in Valinor. So all these betrayals could be attributed to him as well. Yeah, like, like mythically you would say that sort of the negative emotions of art would be sort of attributed to, to Melkor and Morgoth. Jealousy right? wasn't a thing until right. he brought it up. Yeah. <laughs> I would say Faye Morph and Golf in jealousy could have been, I don't know, but maybe. Jealousy wasn't acted upon until... But like, yeah, but like I don't think that, that it's clear to say that all bad things can become Morgoth. I mean, maybe. Maybe oh. in this mythic view well, that all, all betrayals of originating Morgoth, but I don't think that's necessary. Actually, I think I'm thinking of the Silmarillion where we were talking yeah. about... Um, the Ainu Lindelay, when where his additions to the song, yeah, because yeah, so yeah. like discord is introduced because of yes. him, and yeah. so like all sort of discording kind of like trace back to him. Then you're getting into more like a deterministic, like all bad things come because an ancient evil is affecting us. Right. But I don't think. I mean, that could possibly be the case, Pretty but I think there definitely is some free will being in play. Right, and I don't think I don't think Tolkien would say that that. The source of evil is some some is the devil. Like the only source of evil is the devil, right? That wouldn't be in his in his tradition that he's inherited, right? He would say that actually. Well, I shouldn't say that. I'm not sure. I don't think about it. But anyway, that doesn't eliminate the fact that Alex is right in that there is free will involved, which of course we're going to see as we as we progress, right? So we don't have to get too deep into that at this point. But Kara, and then there's a bunch of other hands that have, Pauline. I think you had your hand up. Mm -hmm. Okay, so Kara. Building off Dan's point about Silverman bringing up the introduction, are we not there yet? Uh, almost. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So let me let's finish up this bit, and then we're going to go to that bit. Okay. So because I want to give people the chance to talk about the curse before we say this is what Tolkien said it was, so that we can so Tolkien can prove us all wrong. Okay. <laughs> so. Um, so yeah. So this idea of seeing, and I really like Sophia, like you said, that hierarchy, and I think that'd be really fun to explore in in Tolkien's works. Um, but I just want to read this bit out of um, the Aina Lindale, and this is right after Melkor has done his, his discord, right? Um, then Iluvatar spoke and said, Mighty are the Ainur, and mightiest among them is Melkor. But that he may know, and all the Ainur, that I am Iluvatar, Iluvatar, those things that ye have sung, I will show them forth, that ye may see what ye have done, and thou, Melkor, shalt see that no theme may be played that hath not its uttermost source in me, nor can any alter the music in my despite. For he that attempteth this shall prove but mine instrument in the devising of things more wonderful, which he himself hath not imagined. Right? That is Iluvatar reorienting Melkor's vision. Right? Um... For not, in a sense, because clearly at this point, Mel Morgoth still has his vision has not been restored, right? It's still a skewed kind of vision, right? He Mel Morgoth still thinks that he is the master of the fates of Arda. That name, by the way, is very important. It's going to come back, right? That he is the master of the fates of Arda, 
that he is the one who determines the course of the world, that he is the one to which all things eventually will submit, because outside of him there is nothing, right? That is a skewed vision, right? And now he is forcing Turin, or Urin, to see the world through that skewed vision, right? And it's interesting that we don't actually see how this plays out. We see how this is going to play out with Turin. We don't see how it plays out with Hurin until you read The Wanderings of Hurin in the History of Middle-earth, which we read last semester as part of our readings, right? Where Tolkien actually writes a story about what happens to Hurin after he's released from Morgoth. And there you start to see that Hurin, that, that Hurin has been sort of disoriented by, by this. Okay, Alex. Okay, so when you're reading that part about the Idol Lindley, yeah. I think that's interesting to think about while you're reading the Children of Horan, because, like, because, so you know, like, um, Iluvatar says, all the singing of Melkor will work in the story. But I think it's interesting as, as this particular case study that it's included in the introduction, because I don't know how this becomes good kind of deal. Like, exactly. to be to, interesting to take the story of, of the Children of Horan and think of what if any parts are actually being turned towards good, right. or if maybe we have to look so much bigger than the story itself that this story is not really a good example of that. Right. But I mean, like, I don't want to spoil stuff, so we should wait till we actually read through it, but kind of keep that in the exactly. mind of like, is this ultimately turning to good, or is this not, is this not big enough for right. that cause to yeah. work? And related to that, and, and that's exactly right, Alex, related to that is, why, because the Silmarillion is written from the perspective of the elves, why do the elves include this story of Turin, a human, in their canon? Right? And so it is, in fact, a case study for the Einlindian. Right? So that's, as we go through and as we get to the end, those are some of the sort of big kind of cosmic questions that we want to address, which is, why was this story important to the elves? And how does this story fit in with this where? Iluvatar says, all things are going to unfold according to my purposes and for good, right? This kind of thing. So, yeah, so that's great. Um, okay, uh, was there another hand before we move on to the curse itself? I had a hand. But oh, I yeah, Dan, you have your hand. I was just going to say, I'll save most of it for later in the book, but this is the thing I like to think about a lot with reading these earlier works um, about what, what Melkor did that turned too good in in Lupitar's design. Right. Things like him causing strife in Middle-earth, causing people to come together, and little things like that. And I I think it's a good idea to to think about that as we move forward. Yeah. And again, to remember, and we didn't get into this too much, but maybe we will at the end, that that Tolkien himself has inherited a kind of tradition about free will and and demand, right? From a guy named named, uh, Boethius, right? And, and we'll talk about that a little bit if we if it comes up. It probably will because I don't know how it could. But anyway, so he's working from that kind of right, which is not the only view out there, obviously, right? So and it, and it is open to critique, which we're free to do here. So okay, so we understand now that 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 the 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 sort of quote unquote the punishment that Hurin is receiving from Morgoth because Hurin dared to mock Morgoth is that Hurin is now going to see through Morgoth's eyes, right? And we acknowledge that that is a twisted kind of vision, right? So it's not trustworthy. 
Yet, at the same time, right, what Hurin is going to see is Morgoth's hatred of his family and Morgoth sort of turning his, his vast attention particularly on the family of Hurin and sort of bend, it's such great language, right? Bending his will upon them, right? So that's what I mean by this isn't just Hurin seeing through Morgoth's eyes. The curse is effective. That is, the curse of Morgoth is actually going to have effects on the world, in particular. So that's now the question. What, what does that mean, right? How is it that this curse has a kind of power to it that is, in fact, going to influence and affect and change the destiny, right? This kind of language, right? That raises the big question that Alex raised, which is, how does human freedom fit into that kind of sort of cosmic energy power being brought to bear on a mortal person, right? So, okay, so Alex, you get to start us off. Okay, so what I think about that um, is, so again, I bring back always to this line of, you know not what rules the hearts of men. So I think a big part of the curse of Morgoth is like, obviously he knows how to make things bad and he knows how to create bad situations and he knows how to do that because that's what he does. He's like an evil dark lord. But he doesn't know the hearts of men. So he doesn't actually, like, that leads me to believe that he doesn't actually know how Torn will react but he's capable of bending the situation so it sucks for him all the time. Yeah. But he's still not really as in control of Turin because he doesn't know how men will actually react to this. And maybe he doesn't know that for any creatures, but I would say this implies that he would maybe know better how to manipulate elves than men, perhaps. Um, but yeah, so I think his curse is more like he makes these horrible situations, maybe, and then Turin gets to react to them because Morgoth can't tell or understand how that will happen, but he's still going to make life hell. Yeah. Actually, I really like that. Right? Yeah. I like that to kind of remember that line, right? That Morgoth cannot see into the hearts of men. And that could mean, like you say, right? That he can sort of arrange circumstances, but can't sort of predict. And that's going to actually come up. There's going to be a point in the story where that may prove true. So we'll wait till we get there. But when we get there, hopefully we'll, we'll remember this. Um, Anything else on, on the curse itself before I turn it over to Kara, who's sort of been just dying to get into the introduction, which we really want to look at? Yes, Sophia. I thought it was interesting how, in light, especially in light of what Alex said, Morgoth basically tells um, Horin that your family and your son are going to die cursing life as well as death. So it's interesting to whether like does he mean that he's going to try and get in Torrin's head or does he mean that he's just going to try his very best to make circumstances suck so badly that Torrin curses everything because there's a big difference right. in terms of Torrin's psychological response to all the tragedy that happens to him and whether or not he gains any kind of strength from that or whether he will exactly as Morgoth said just hate everything Yes. I mean, there is um, uh, the shadow of my purpose lies upon Arda, right? So right away, there's this question of, okay, so so when he says Arda, does he mean like what does he mean by Arda, 
right? You could say he means Arda, like the earth, but not the inhabitants of the earth, right? Or he could mean Arda in the sense of all that has been made, you know, which would include the, the inhabitants, which would include people, right? Um, and all that is in it, so that answers the question, so that would be include inhabitants, all that is in it bends slowly and surely to my will, right? Now, again, remember this is a skewed vision, right? But this seems to be at least what Morgoth believes about himself, right? That he is now able to bend Arda and all that is in it, which would include Turin, slowly and surely to his will. But, right, but, upon all whom you love, my, shot, my thought shall weigh as a cloud of doom, and it shall bring them down into darkness and despair. It seems here that Morgoth is saying, even though all of Arda and its happens bend to my will, I'm giving special attention to you. <laughs> right? And, you know, and it shall bring them down into darkness. And it, upon those you love, right? So it does suggest, you know, that it's more than just the circumstances around them, but that actually it, it's, it's, the, it's Turin himself that somehow is going to be, I don't know, driven in some way. You know, maybe. Um, Wherever they go, evil shall arise. Whenever they speak, their word shall bring ill counsel. Whatsoever they do shall turn against them. Right? So it's not just the circumstances around them that are affecting them, but they themselves are going to affect the circumstances around them by what they say and what they do. Right? So that's part of this, this whole thing. Okay, Paulina. I'll make this quick, but I think initially he's talking about um, the shadow of my purpose lies upon Arda. I think that's all to do with uh, how um, he included all of his will in the Ionalindale and in the song, and he, he thinks that it's the, the best inclusion, and that um, regardless of what Lubitar says, everything that he put into the song is going to happen. Okay. Regardless, and secondly, I think um, because Turin is mocking him so much, he just feels like he's going to pay special current attention to Turin. And so he says, yes, everything is going to happen my way, but I'm going to make this really bad for you in this specific sense, now yeah. that I know. Yeah, that's good. And I actually like that. The, the, I like the idea of the shadow of his purpose being him referring back to the Ainulindale that he was doing all this the nasty stuff. It was certainty. Yeah. Okay, so Nick, and then we gotta go to the introduction, otherwise Kara will never forgive me. <laughs> no, I probably Okay, Nick, go. Um, well I think when he says the shadow of my purpose lies on Arda, I think he's talking about sort of like the world itself, because it seems like his focus is on like like the the world, like you know, forgive me, like the, the planet itself, like the land, the, the air, sort of the mountains, and when he says that my thoughts are like a dark cloud on like your loved ones kind of thing. I think he means that sort of like the world around them is sort of like bends to my will so that it kind of like seeps into their being and like is, they're affected by it. Because like Sauron, is his successor, he pays particular attention to like bending the minds and the wills of like the inhabitants, whereas uh, Melkor is kind of thinking of like just like overcoming and bending the world itself, not like the inhabitants are kind of like a side effect of that. Like, just, like, you know, like the very air around them will sort of, you know, make, like permeate their being and make them do my will, sort of, as a result of this. Well, I think Malcolm okay. wanted to wipe the slate clean and start again. Okay, so we're going to go to the introduction, because we're almost out of time. In the introduction, Christopher gives some insight into what his father actually was thinking in this. So on page 16 in this version, and I'm just, I'll just read it, because we don't have time to, to try to have everyone try to find it. But it's in the introduction, it's, um, oh, it's like three pages in, right? It says, Christopher writes, The curse of such a being 
who can claim that the shadow of my purpose lies upon Arva, the earth, and all that is in it bent solely and surely to my will, is unlike the curses or imprecations of beings of far less power. Morgoth is not invoking evil or calamity on Urim and his children. He is not calling on a higher power to be the agent. For he, master of the fates of Arda, as he named himself to Urim, intends to bring about the ruin of his enemy by the force of his own gigantic will. Thus he designs the future of those whom he hates. And so he says to Urim, Upon all whom you love, my thought shall weigh as a cloud of doom, and it shall bring them down into darkness and despair. And the line that I found interesting, thus he designs the future of those whom he hates. Yeah, Alex. Um, yeah, I still think that could leave ambiguity, because then now you're still bringing into that, yeah, Morgoth knows what he wants to happen. He is designing, and he is using his gigantic will to like make what he wants happens to Turin. But then there's always that question, like, does it happen? Right. Like, does Turin have any say in that? Is it possible that Turin himself can slightly deviate or greatly deviate from that gigantic will, even if Morgoth is so powerful because he is ultimately failable right. as Morgoth? Yeah. So they think there's okay. still that question. Yes. Because designs can always be thwarted. Exactly. Right? So, okay. Uh, Corinne and Paulina, and then we're going to read a bit further in the introduction. Well, and I think you can, I mean, you see that also later in Tolkien's works, like Lord of the Rings, where he, you know, there's the designs of Sauron, and, you know, Gandalf is talking to Frodo, and it's like, you were meant to have the ring, but not by its design. And right. So, part of it is free will, part of it's also the warring designs between, you know, good and evil, and the, the forces that, right. because it, it, it wasn't just Morgoth that made Middle-earth, it wasn't just his, you know, evil and twisted designs that made it, there was, there was good in there. Yeah. It may not be as evident in the Silmarillion as it obviously is later in Middle-earth, but there, there's still a warring part in there that has the potential for Turin's life to work out better yeah. than, than Morgoth would design it. Yeah, I mean, and it raises, it raises another question, of course, is, okay, so on the one hand, human free will is able to escape the designs of Morgoth, but is human free will able, able to escape the designs of Iluvatar? Right? which raises a whole other question of human agency and free will, so, which is beyond the scope of this particular text, but maybe when we get to the Silmarillion again, then we'll talk about that. Uh, Paulina. I just, yeah, I wanted to agree. I mean, design and manufacture are completely different things, and, um, yeah, if he, if he, like, has this plan in place, I mean, like, who's to say that someone else's plan isn't going to interfere? I mean, he assumes that no one's going to um, thwart him because he's so mighty. Who would defy Morgoth? Who would go against my design? It's just not possible. Yeah, and, and, and okay, so now we'll read the next paragraph, because Hurin, in, in, in the end, does not resist, right? The torment that he devised for Hurin was to see with Morgoth's eyes. My father gave a definition of what this meant. And I don't know where this is, I don't think it's in the letters, but if one were forced to look into Morgoth's eye, he would see or receive in his mind, from Morgoth's mind, a compellingly credible picture of events distorted by Morgoth's bottomless malice. And if indeed any could refuse Morgoth's command, Hurin did not. This was in part, my father said, because his love of his kin and his anguished anxiety for them made him desire to learn all that he could of them, no matter what the source, and in part from his pride, believing that he had defeated Morgoth in debate, 
and that he could outstare Morgoth, this is Denethor, and Saruman, or at least retain his critical reason and distinguish between fact and malice. Okay, Kara? Okay, this is the part I wanted to talk about. Yeah. Um, so going back briefly to Dan's point about pride, it mentioned that that's what is part of the reason that Thorin uh, fails. But I really like the sign. So we're talking about why Thorin was able to say no to all of Morgoth's temptations. But here it says, um, and if indeed any could refuse Morgoth's command, Thorin did not. It's not that he could not, it's that he did not. Because both of his fallible human characteristics of pride, but also because of his great love. So it's both the really good qualities of people and the really kind of crappy qualities of people, like you're talking like the seven deadly sins, pride being one of them, is, is yeah. what caused him to go through this torment. Because it sounds like if he chose not to, he could have somehow resisted this. Right. And the, and the means by which he could have resisted would be to, um, well, well, to, to, in some sense, um, disengage his love for his kin with his desire for his kin. Right? In some way. Right? So he could still love them. But part of it was not just love. It was also his desire to know everything he could about them. Right? If he, could have, if he were able to resist that and just say, I love my kin, and I'm going to, in a sense, you know, he's, he's learned from the Valar, right? I'm going to commit them into the hands of Iluvatar, right? And then not... But because he had this need to know, he was desperate to know about what was happening to them, that he would even take the information from Morgoth, and so, and which was twisted, right? So that's very interesting, right? But now I want to do this last paragraph because we're almost done. So if we'll, we'll just skip the next paragraph and then go. In the tale of Turin, oh, this is the big giveaway, who named himself Turinbar, master of fate, the curse of Morgoth seems to be seen as power unleashed to work evil, seeking out its victims. So the fallen Vala himself is said to fear that Turin would grow to such a power that the curse that he had laid upon him would become void he would escape the doom that had been designed for him. Yes, Kara? I don't know if we're going to get to this, but I just say it in case it was a spoiler, but it's interesting that Turin is named Master of Fate, and Morgoth is named Master of All the Fates of Exactly. Art. Because only one person can actually be the Master of right. his fate. And yes, and I, we were going to get to that. Exactly. Turin names himself that. Right? So, so and when we get to that, we're going to talk, we'll talk about that and how that relates to, to Morgoth giving himself that. Um, but it's interesting, this line, right? The curse of Morgoth seems to be seen as power unleashed to work evil seeking out its victims, right? So that, again, is a sense that this curse is not just, you know, we, we call this, we call this uh, performative speech or speech acts, right? The same way that in a wedding, right, the minister, pastor, rabbi, whoever can speak, right? I now pronounce you husband and wife, right? And that pronouncement has a kind of performative power. It actually changes the reality of the situation. These people now are a husband and a wife. They're married, right? Morgoth's curse is performative, right? He speaks, and the speech actually has effect, right? It changes reality in some way, right? It, it's, it's power unleashed and in such an interesting sort of agency. It seeks out victims, right? I mean, this is pretty, this is pretty malevolent, right? Yeah, Alex. Um, I think the th interesting thing to me in this paragraph is the part that it says the fallen battle himself said is to fear that Turin would grow of such a power that curse lay upon him would become void, he would escape the doom that had been designed for him. And 
I think it's like I just think it's interesting that that was even a thought, basically. Yes. That, like and like how divorced are Turin and Horin, right? Because like originally the curse was all on Horin. He was like Horin mocked me, so I'm putting this curse upon him. Yeah. How dare he do that? But then there's this part where now Turin is this other thing that's being affected by this curse, but perhaps has this own power beyond. Well, like this, his, he's a, such a powerful being, but Morgoth didn't curse him because Torn was powerful. He cursed Torn because Torn mocked him. Well, like, there's right, something else, because for a while, until right now, I was trying to figure out what he meant by that. And yeah. what I think it means is that Morgoth, in a sense, unleashes this power that now sort of works its own way in the world, even out of the control of Morgoth. Which is why Turin can now become more, you know what I mean? It's almost like, like, like Morgoth kind of sets this power free into the world. And, it, and this power sort of becomes this, this weird thing that, that is beyond the control of, of both Morgoth and Turin. Right? Which is why Morgoth is, can be afraid that, oops, what if, I just, what if I just let loose here? Right? Now Turin could actually, you know what I mean? Like, cause, which yeah, is really interesting. interesting. I mean, that's what's really interesting in and of itself, right? And what that means. And, and, and inter- I mean, when we do our panel on Tolkien and power, this is something we definitely have to keep in mind, right? But, you know, like, what does it mean, like, Morgoth sort of sets this, this curse loose upon the world and just kind of like, whoa, okay, what have, you know, what have I just done here? And now this thing kind of like, you know, it's almost like God in the biblical story blessing the world and sending this kind of power of life into the world that seems to kind of go its own way in some weird weird way. Okay, and then boy, okay, so we'll do these three and then we're going to have to wrap it up. So Paulina and then Brayden and then Kara. I like the way that Alex had described it though, that he's, he's contra- concentrating so hard on, on making Torn's life crap and then when Torn reacts, the situation has to change depending on what his design is. So he set up this design, but I assume he, he sets multiple paths from the same um, yeah. Starting point. So I think he is actively concentrating on Torin and, and this curse and everything. He's not just laissez faire, mm. letting it go. Yeah. Okay. Um, I want to yeah. know that earlier, someone there's kind of the idea that the higher you rise, the higher you can fall. So I think it's part of the great tragedy is that Turin was almost capable of rising to a to a level to challenge Morgoth, and so he had that much farther to fall. Right. Mm. Nice. Yeah. I think it's yeah. kind of interesting that Morgoth even has any moments of doubt. Like, Morgoth, who thinks he is all-powerful and thinks that nothing can ever go wrong, that doubt even ever crosses his mind, because that's one of his big faults, is that he is very proud, and he is very yeah. sure of himself, overconfident. So the fact that he's at all worried about this now should be a big indicator. Yeah, it's interesting. There's that moment in The Lord of the Rings where Sauron experiences death as well. I think it's right after Aragorn looks in the Palantir. Yeah, yes. Right? But there you have a similar kind of yeah, certainly. It's interesting to think that Torin could have possibly escaped, considering that, like, when you talk about the Andalindalay, men themselves are outside. Maybe, so it's interesting that maybe that itself has something to do with it, maybe? Yeah. Yeah. It's all great. I mean, it's all great. Yeah. Okay, anyway, okay, we got it. We got it.